0: I only moved to Ireland last August, and when I got an apartment in Dublin, I started leaving my window open in the evenings. I could hear these sounds, not too far in the distance. The soothing, rhythmic sounds of tennis, occasionally interrupted by screams of the players. I'm a big fan of tennis, so I was curious about the game's history here in Ireland. This led me to the year 1879, and to a strange name, Veer Thomas St. Leger Gould. Veer was the winner of the first Irish Championships, and that same year he got second place at Wimbledon. For my research, there are these two pictures of Veer Gould that stick in my memory. One shows him as a young man. Veer's at the height of his athletic career. He stands among a group of well-dressed gentlemen in hats. His blonde hair and his mustache are meticulously combed. He wears this fancy black and white striped scarf. He looks cool and confident. The next picture shows Gould 30 years later. He stands on the deck of a French convict ship in a one-piece jumpsuit. His head and face are almost completely shaven. His eyebrows are overgrown. He doesn't fill out the prison outfit, and he resembles a hairless, long-limbed child. He's looking out to sea. The ship he's on is headed to Devil's Island, a prison colony that's been compared to Hitler's concentration camps. For me, the question of Veer Gould's story is how he arrived from one of these pictures to the other. How he went from an Irish aristocratic tennis champion to a murderer. To find the answer, we're going to go back to Sunday Mass in Clonmel, County Tipperary. St. Mary's Catholic Church in Clonmel. Just below the choir gallery is the parish office. Uh, Do you know how old this book is? Yeah, this book covers
1: 1843 to 1863. Wow. What was his first name?
0: It would be Veer Thomas. Yeah,
1: there it is, look.
0: Here, the parish list won Veer Thomas St. Ledger Gould, born in 1853.
1: He was baptized on the 4th of October. His father would have been George.
0: Veer had a charmed childhood. Shortly after his birth in Clonmel, the family moved to Waterford, where he played tennis, sailed, hunted, and boxed. His family owned horses. Veer loved to ride them and to bet on races. Veer soon made his name as one of the best tennis players in the country. Years later, in his diary, he would remember this time. I've become a great tennis player. Everyone is madly jealous of me. And towards the end of his life, when Veer became notorious, an old classmate remembered him as a teenager.
2: He was a growing youth of aristocratic appearance who attracted great attention as he walked around the town, linked arm in arm with his
3: father.
0: Although he grew up in Waterford, St Mary's Church Choir members say Clonmel has not forgotten about Virgold.
2: Rogue, he's was. He a was rogue. Yeah. right rogue. He used to be a member of this choir.
0: <laughs> in fact, a play about Virgold was first performed here in Clonmel.
1: This is a number of years ago since I'd seen it. It's obviously about this gold man who, like as well as being a good tennis player, had a second life.
4: The play
5: is called Love All, you get the tennis pun there.
0: Love All is actually a pretty complicated play, but at the center of it is the story of Virgold's life, from his tennis triumphs to his descent into desperation, ending with a murder in Monte Carlo.
5: The play is a comedy, and that's not to say that we were trying to make a joke of a terrible situation.
0: Clonmel actress Adine Wilde, who wrote and performed in the production.
5: Veer Gould is certainly depicted as a cad, a rogue, a wonderful tennis player who lost the run of himself. Really,
0: be serious. <laughs> a comedy about a murder can be a tricky endeavor, but Laval was a pretty big success.
5: We did 97 performances. Car. <laughs>
0: although one of the venues made Aideen sort of uncomfortable.
5: The last performance we ever did was in Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club, where Vera Gould was a member. I mean, there's photos of him hanging up on the walls. <laughs> it's just that kind of feeling of, might he see what's going on here? Might, you know, is there a possibility that uh, you might turn a corner and... <laughs> And there's Veer, you know, with his racket.
0: I was also curious about that photo. So I went off to the Fitzwilliam Tennis Club.
6: So here we have a, a photograph. Our good friend, Veer Gould, is there at the back, blonde, not wearing a hat. Most of the other guys in the, in the in the picture wear a hat. He was always wanted to be a bit different.
0: David Fassbender is a historian with Fitzwilliam Lawn Tennis Club in Dublin. In the 1870s, Fitzwilliam was a major destination for tennis, just when the sport was getting started.
6: In those days, the two Grand Slams were really Wimbledon and the Championships of Ireland played in Fitzwilliam Square, hosted by Fitzwilliam Tennis Club.
0: Fitzwilliam Tennis Club was also a destination for Virgold. At that point, he'd moved from Waterford to Dublin. He'd been a student at Trinity College, but when I went looking, I could not find a record of him graduating. After university, Veer got himself a job in the civil service, which he found uninspiring. Instead, he put his energies into the new game of tennis, which suited his competitive nature and was also ideal for social climbing.
6: It was very much a game for the gentry, for the the people who had some money and leisure time.
0: Tennis events, like the ones in Fitzwilliam Square, were big social occasions, with military bands, marquees, and refreshments. This was the place to see and be seen. Virgold was not an outsider in the tennis scene. His father was a magistrate, his mother came from aristocracy, and he was one of the best tennis players in the country. Soon, his talent for tennis made him the center of attention at the Irish Championships.
6: He was clearly, it seems, quite a charismatic guy. He was a very handsome man, obviously a very fine tennis player. He had all the right background, a chap in every sense of the word.
0: and Veer was a chap with his own unique style of playing this new game.
6: Gould had a reputation of being a very aggressive player. Most tennis at that time was tended to be played from the baseline, but he was apparently one of the early exponents of getting to the net, wanting to win by his shots. That probably reflected the personality of the guy who was outgoing extrovert. He, he,
0: he, was, he was different. Veer was so different that he ran through the Irish Championships that year. And after that, he set his sights across the Irish Sea to London and Wimbledon. He was a favorite there in terms of the tennis and also the parties
6: you know, with his reputation and so many English people having come over here to the Championships of Ireland, that when he went over to Wimbledon, he was very much welcomed. And uh, he was very much a party animal and people liked to have him at their party.
0: Again, years later in his diary, Veer wrote about his precocious talent for tennis. My early appetite and knowledge of the racket put me in a good position.
2: And it was recognised as the best player and most deserving.
6: It's very hard to compare Gould with the modern day player. I suppose a name that springs to mind would be personality-wise, it also as McEnroe, uh, who obviously was a very lively personality, and also played very aggressive tennis, a lot of servant volley stuff. I'm not saying that he ever he got involved in any Monte Carlo antics
7: first Wimbledon. It started off, if you like, low-key, but the social theme was the same principle applied as in Dublin, aristocracy meeting up.
0: Nobody in Ireland knows more about tennis than Tom Higgins. He's the author of the three-volume History of Irish Tennis.
7: The tennis players and their entourage, if you like, they would go to their tennis tournaments and they would have their schedule worked out for the summer.
0: The Irish champion, Veer Gould, was the star everyone wanted to see. He just kept on winning. According to Tom, he made the finals pretty easily.
7: His opponent in the Wimbledon final is Reverend John Hartley.
0: Gould and Hartley were two very different players. Gould kept attacking with his aggressive net game. Hartley was a solid, patient baseliner. As well as playing differently, Veer Gould and the Reverend Hartley were two very different kinds of people. This was obvious in the way they managed their time off before the final. Veer was socialising, while the Reverend Hartley actually left London.
7: He literally on the Saturday evening had to travel back home, do all his Sunday services, and on the Monday morning travel back to Wimbledon by train again and play the Wimbledon final.
0: Years later, in prison, Virgil may have looked back at that weekend before the Wimbledon final and seen it as the most important weekend of his life. Because on Monday, Hartley showed up to the Wimbledon final with his holy duties in mind. But when Virgil showed up, he was hungover.
7: The final, according to reports, the final was a bit of non-excitement, if you like. It was a one way event with Hartley winning in three sets 6 2, 6 4, 6 2.
0: In a post match interview, Hartley was generous about his opponent.
7: He was a cheery, wild Irishman, Irish champion, and a very pretty player. That, that's the term they use for a skillful player. I think he valued more than most of us that year, but there were some weaknesses, I suppose, in his play.
0: There's no record of a post-match interview from Gould.
7: I presume after the match was over, he went off and enjoyed the celebrity status, if you like to call it that, or the entertainment side of the event.
0: Think of the position of someone like Gould in the 19th century. Life was speeding up. Electricity had just been invented. Automobiles were becoming more and more popular. He was close to the center of the world's biggest empire. The world was expanding, and to succeed, you needed personality, ambition, and a competitive drive. Fear Gould had all of that, and more.
5: What if it had just gone the other way? What if he had just gone home the night before the Wimbledon final, after three points, you know? (laughs) What, what if?
0: After the Wimbledon loss, Gould's role in the tennis world diminished. He played in the Irish Championships again the next year and lost. He would appear in a few more local tournaments, but never again at Wimbledon. And anyway, he had other things on his mind. He ended his career in the civil service in Dublin and moved to London. The first of many moves Fear would make in the pursuit of fortune. With the help of an allowance from his family, he embarked on a new career as a gentleman of leisure
7: because he was interested in other things. He was interested in gambling, and he was interested in having a good social life.
0: In London, Vere had a new way of introducing himself. Sir. Sir Vere Gould. But, according to writer Michael Sheridan, Vere was not entitled to call himself Sir. There was a title, there was a baronetcy,
2: which was inherited after the father's death by his brother, Stephen Gould. But what Gould did he borrowed it because your mom was in Australia. So he actually took the title for himself, although he had absolutely no right for it at all.
0: The capital of the world's largest empire was an ideal place to reinvent yourself. And of course, Vera Gould wasn't the only one at that game. Elsewhere in the city was a young French woman who was hoping to change her fortunes by reinventing herself. She was Marie-Violette Girardin.
2: She had come from a background. She had been married very young in France. That didn't last long, and then her husband died. Then she became a companion to a lady who had plenty of money in London. She met this guy, Captain Wilkinson, and then whatever money he had, she soon got rid of because she went off on a European tour and left him at home, and
0: he ultimately died. But the death of her husband didn't leave Marie a penniless Victorian widow. Actress Adian Wilde says Marie had her own resources.
5: And she was an exquisite dressmaker. She dressed the ladies in Queen Victoria's court.
0: Being a dressmaker for the aristocrats wasn't enough for Marie. She wanted to be one of them. To do that, she needed a certain kind of husband. These days, you can just go meet someone on the internet, but back then, Marie put an ad in the newspaper. Historian Tom Higgins recalls it.
7: Reasonably well-off woman with her own business is seeking a husband.
0: Not just a husband, but a husband with a title. Virgold read the ad, and the fact that he didn't actually have a title didn't stop him from replying as Sir Gould. He and Marie hit it off.
2: Two people couldn't have been worse for each other, to put it this way, because they both shared certain traits.
5: Two really talented people who led each other astray, picked on each other's weaknesses.
2: They were both fantasists, really. He fantasised as a sir and she fantasised
0: as a lady. It's not clear if she knew he wasn't actually a sir, but in the end, it may have been the kind of trick she could identify with and respect. Vere and Marie married the year they met, 1891. Vere was 37, she was 40. Soon, it was time for another move in Vere's life. Together, they left London and headed across the Atlantic. It was reported years later that when they left their rented apartment in the West End, they sold off all the landlord's furniture. Veer and Marie settled in Montreal, Canada, which at the time was booming. They still pretended they were titled, and called themselves Sir and Lady Gould. This was the start of Veer and Marie's most prosperous years together. They successfully borrowed, conned, and cheated themselves into the life they truly wanted. In Montreal, they opened a dressmaking business. It was actually successful at the beginning, thanks in part to large loans they solicited from wealthy customers. While Marie managed the business, Veer was not idle. He was indulging in one of his old obsessions, gambling. He'd had a unique approach as a tennis player, which had helped him win. And now he was searching for the same sort of advantage in games of chance.
7: He started studying gambling methods. He actually bought a roulette wheel for his own house. He thought he had a way of actually making a fortune.
0: But it wasn't working. Soon the dressmaking shop was in the red, and the Goulds were spending money quicker than it came in. Veer was drinking heavily, and he made a big investment in a clothing business that failed. The Goulds were living beyond their means, and it was time for yet another move. After five years in Montreal, they decided to travel back across the Atlantic to Liverpool. Their Montreal business was still intact, but in heavy debt. They continued to withdraw against it from overseas. Interestingly, years later, when the couple hit the headlines, the New York Times reported that when they left their rented accommodation in Montreal, Sir Veer and Lady Marie also cleared out all its furniture. When they got to Liverpool, Marie managed a laundry business, and the Goulds mixed with the local upper crust. Among their neighbors, they somehow gained a reputation as refined teetotalers.
5: Gould at this point was a fully-blown alcoholic, like really spending any money they had on gambling and drink.
0: You have to ask yourself, what was Marie thinking during all of this?
5: I suppose the question I have is why she wanted to keep them going.
0: Aideen Wilde, who co-wrote the play about Gold,
5: Like, did she think at some point their look would turn? She must have. She must have thought that at some point they would catch a break that would lead them to a higher status in society.
0: Around the turn of the 20th century, there were two ways to gain higher status in society. One was through money. The other was through mingling with aristocracy. At the time, there was a place in Europe where you could go to do both. The tiny, rocky principality of Monaco. Monaco had devised a method to boost their economy. A fashionable casino for the world's elite.
3: Here now we are in the main lobby of the casino.
0: Fatou Diallo is a tour guide in Monaco.
3: Here the lobby is made with 28 fake marble columns. Everywhere there's gold. You feel in a very rich place. You feel really impressed by all these luxurious decoration. It looks like a palace more than a casino.
0: The casino was becoming a stage for the internationally wealthy and royalty.
3: We had uh, the Tsar of Russia. We could have the emperor of uh, Portugal, the emperor of Japan, the the king of Belgium, and even King Edward VII, who was coming here so often uh, that uh, he was coming sometimes incognito uh, below the name of uh, Captain White. (laughs) At that time, uh, we had so many uh, royal highnesses and uh, monarchs that it was a little bit like the G twenty summit.
0: One other thing about Monte Carlo. in popular culture, it got a reputation as a place where a skilled gambler could win big. smiled upon
4: me as <laughs> she never smiled before, and i now money. i
0: this is the famous music hall song from the 1890s, The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo. The
4: Monte And I along the
0: all of this, the high society and the easy pickings, made Monte Carlo an ideal destination for the con artist, Waterford man Vere and his French wife Marie, who both continued to call themselves Sir and Lady Gould. When they arrived in Monaco, the Gould settled in a luxury apartment in a villa just down the street from the casino.
3: So here is the Medezini villa. Now uh, the ground floor uh, is uh, a bank, Credit Mobilier de Monaco. So the Vergold couple were staying at the first floor uh, of this uh, villa that we have now in front of us, uh, building a typical of the uh, Belle Epoque time uh, with nice uh, balconies.
0: What would it have been like here in 1907 in this area.
3: Of course, uh, no cars, probably uh, some carriages, no buildings, and uh, more trees, and more vegetation, and because all this area was full of olive groves and citruses.
0: Again, they started to network with the wealthy.
2: They were introduced to a Danish widow called Leven, Madame Leven, And she had been married to a Jewish stockbroker in Copenhagen who was very well off. I think he was probably much older than her. And in her marriage, she led quite a sheltered life. And he died, I think, in about 1906 and left her a very
0: wealthy woman. Emma Levin may have been well off, but she had some sadness in her life.
3: Here now you have pictures of Emma Levin, And here she's posing for this photograph with a little girl that she tried to adopt. But at the end of the day, her mother had her back.
2: And she decided to go to Monte Carlo. And she has been sort of closeted and cloistered before. Can you imagine Monte Carlo, which as Somerset Mom described
0: it as a sunny place for shady people? The wealthy widow, Emma Levin, may have led a conservative, sheltered life in Copenhagen, but in one particular way, she fit right in at the casino. Madame Levin was known for wearing her large collection of jewelry at every chance. But she had no real aristocratic status to go along with her wealth. Vera and Marie had no wealth, but they had the right kind of status, as a baronet and a lady, supposedly. So Levin and the Goulds were a convenient match. She lent them money for gambling, and they happily mixed with her at social events. But soon, things began to sour between them. One night at the casino in August of 1907, Marie Gould got into a very public argument with another acquaintance of Emma Levin's, someone who was also known to borrow money from Emma.
3: The Vergold couple uh, were fighting another person, and it was uh, released in the newspaper.
0: In a society where maintaining face and keeping up appearance was so important, having her name associated with a public spat made Emma incredibly embarrassed.
3: So Emma Levin decided to leave Monaco because it was not good um, advertising for her.
0: Before she left, Emma Levin wanted her money back from the Goulds. Reports say that it was only 40 pounds, which isn't that much for a wealthy widow. But out of principle, she sent the Goulds a note demanding it back. Sir and Lady Gould replied by inviting Emma for tea at their apartment. On Sunday, August 4th, 1907, Emma came by wearing her usual splendid array of jewelry.
3: So she came on this uh, afternoon to have uh, her money back. So she she arrived in the uh, apartment. They uh, argued. A
2: the neighbour heard a number of screams coming from the apartment, but didn't pay much attention to it. You know, thought it might have been a row or something like that. What actually happened was this: that at some stage there was the question of money arose. Obviously, the ghouls would have been trying to make excuses. He went to the kitchen and took up a pestle, and he went back. And she must have had her back to him. He hit her over the head with this to stun her. But she wasn't stunned, and a struggle ensued. And apparently, M11 knew that she was in danger and fought very hard. So he then took a knife, and then he stabbed her, I think about 10 times, twice through the
0: heart. Years later, Marie Gould wrote about the murder and its aftermath. She said that the next night, a neighbor was out walking his black poodle and passed by Veer on the street. Veer was carrying a small leather suitcase, and the poodle apparently threw a fit. The dog wouldn't stop barking at the bag. The neighbor apologized to Sir Veer for his poorly behaved dog. And then, the Goulds very suddenly decided it was time for a new move.
7: Yeah.
0: The next morning, they packed up and took a short trade journey along the Mediterranean coast to Marseille. Among their luggage was Vera's small leather bag and a large, heavy trunk. They arrived in the morning at the station Gar Saint-Charles. This is Gare Saint-Charles today, still the main railway station for
1: Marseille.
0: On the platform, I meet historian Patrick Boulanger.
1: — So
4: getting off a train, uh, which would have been then, in those days, probably a luxury train.
0: — With Patrick uh, as his friend, Martin Pashi, who's 22. going to translate.
4: — And they would be met by a crowd of porters wanting to take their bags either to their left luggage, as would have been for the Goulds, or to the hotels further down in the city.
0: — Patrick has researched what happened to the Goulds once they arrived here that morning.
1: Et puis ensuite, c'est la recherche d'un hôtel, et cet hôtel, c'est l'hôtel...
0: They
4: hired a cab and took the cab down to the hôtel Louvre et la Paix, which still exists today. Les
1: Gould choisissent dans cet hôtel une chambre au deuxième étage.
4: When they got to the hotel, they took a room on the second floor. But what they also did, which was quite unusual, really, for somebody who's just arrived in a city they've never been to, they ordered a box to be made, roughly 70 centimeters long by 35 by 35, and six meters of rope.
0: The Goulds sent for a shipping agent who had arranged for their trunk to be sent on to London. The agent who arrived at their hotel was a man named Louis Ponce.
4: Louis Ponce really occupies a key role in the whole story. Lorsque Louis
1: Ponce arrives à la Gare Saint-Charles, when he arrives,
4: he's alerted by the staff at the left luggage office of this, what they call a putrid stench. Coming from the trunk, and maybe some signs of something seeping out. Having seen this, Louis Ponce decides that he's not gonna to touch it. He's gonna get the goulds to come up open the trunk to see what's inside it before he'll touch it. And that's what he does. He goes back to the hotel.
0: At the hotel, Pons questioned the gourds about what was in the trunk. They told him it was dead chickens. He didn't believe that. Pons insisted that they come back to the railway station and open the trunk. They call a cab. Uh, Mr. and Mrs.
4: Gould get into the cab, but they tell Pons to stay where he is and he's not coming with them. Pons has this idea that something's amiss, something's a bit fishy. So he runs after the cab, or half the way back to the Gare Saint-Charles. On the way in one of the narrow streets, uh, Mrs Gould turns around and sees that he's following. She tries to bribe the cab driver to take another route and just get them out of Marseille, and he refuses. As a last resort, Mrs Gould tries to jump from the cab, falls under the wheel of the cab, and injures her arm. Ponce catches up with them, puts Mrs Gould back in the cab, and takes them back
1: to the station with him. Gould dit bad business, bad business.
4: So they get back to the station, Gare Saint-Charles, go to the left luggage uh, office and there the guards are forced to open the trunk. For all to see is a headless body and legless body swimming in
1: blood. Et qu'est-ce qu'on découvre? On découvre le corps d'une femme sans tête et sans le bas des jambes.
0: This was the torso of M11. In Veer's small leather bag, the one that the poodle was barking at, was the head and the legs, with the thigh muscles stripped off. And one other piece of luggage Marie also had her handbag with her. When the police looked in it, they found M11's jewelry. They dismembered the body in the bath with a saw and a knife. Michael Sheridan has written about what happened after the murder in his book, Murder in Monte Carlo. He was not a strong person.
2: He was very withered from his excesses of drink. But they managed to dismember the body and remove the head. Now, here's an interesting fact that was discovered at post-mortem. The stomach and entrails were missing. And they deduced that he must have known that how he knew it, maybe he knocked around with a medical undergraduate in Trinity or something, that the very first organs to decompose in the body are the stomach and the liver. and They're the first to putrefy. Now, if they're on a journey from Monte Carlo to London, which was the destination, one can imagine the stench that would attract people's attention. Those entrails, although impossible to identify as hers, were later found
0: on the beach in Monte Carlo. The interrogation of Veer and Marie began. They were separated and questioned. At first, Veer denied killing M. Eleven. He said it was an ex-lover of Levin's who'd burst through the window, killed her, and escaped, while Veer and Marie had been out on the balcony. But then, after several days of questioning, Veer finally admitted that his brain was damaged from drinking and that maybe he'd committed the murder himself, but he didn't remember. In her statement, Marie gave the same story. First, she went with the ex-lover, but then she changed it and put all the blame on Veer. She said he was a drunk, and in the heat of an argument about money, he lost his mind and killed Madame Levin. The Gould's case was a public scandal. The papers loved it.
2: It was called the Trunk Murder, and trials for murder were more popular than any opera house or West End theatre or anything else in those times. But the ones that received the most coverages, anybody from the gentry that was involved in murder, it was splashed all over the papers. I mean, this case was reported all over the world. All over the world. The New York Times, light on the lives of the Ghouls, a former employee talks of Pair accused of murder. The Irish Independent. Shocking details at the trial in Monaco. Life at the gambling tables. The Age. Melbourne, Australia. A diabolical murder. Further confession by Veer Gould. Kerry Sentinel. Prisoner's antecedents. The Gould family. Interesting details.
0: The police investigation took a strange turn. The French prosecutors sent for Veer's family history and even records of his tennis career. Having read that he was from an old Anglo Irish family and a Wimbledon finalist, they speculated that there must have been some external reason for Veer's violence. They concluded that someone of his breeding could not have conceived of the murder himself. He must have been manipulated by someone else the ordinary Frenchwoman, Veer's wife, Marie.
1: Marie Violette, qui est quelque sorte noire de ce She
4: was what you might say the dark angel of the couple.
0: In the trial, Veer was intent on protecting Marie. He said that he still loved her and he refused to incriminate her. What they were
2: faced with was a woman who was admitting nothing, a man who also never once expressed remorse about the actual act. But when the wife was mentioned, he burst into tears. My poor wife was in prison. I was again hallucinating
0: and I saw her carried off into a dungeon. On December 3rd, 1907, four months after Emma Levin's murder, the verdict came in. Marie Gould was found guilty of murder. Her sentence was that she would be executed in public. In a last flamboyant gesture, Marie said she wished to be guillotined, for all to see, in front of the place where she had tried so hard for easy wealth and status, the casino at Monte Carlo. But that wasn't going to happen. The government of Monaco was horrified at the prospect. They weren't about to hold a public execution in front of their world-famous casino. Marie's sentence was commuted to life in prison at Montpellier. For his part, Veer Gould was deemed not entirely responsible for his actions. He was sentenced to a lifetime as a penal slave on Devil's Island, a French prison colony in South America.
2: And it was a regime of utter and absolute brutality, working in in ghastly tropical conditions, building roads that led nowhere just to make them work. They half-starved them, they whipped them, they beat them. There was unmerciful violence among the prisoners themselves, which they encouraged, because if they died, all the better. Going to the guillotine would have been an absolute mercy compared to the way he ended up.
0: Virgould lasted less than a year on Devil's Island and died in September 1909 at age 55. Marie died in prison of typhoid fever in 1914. Amazingly, while in prison, she had actually published novels. I found one of these books in the library at Trinity College, just across from Fitzwilliam Square, where Vere won the first Irish championships. Vere Gould left behind a body of writing, too. Not in novels, but multicolored copybooks made for little French school children. At the start of the first little copybook, book, Veer describes a childhood memory. He says that at age 14, as a boy in Waterford, he watched in amazement as a comet moved through the sky, the Temple I Comet. But by the beginning of the 20th century, the Temple I Comet had disappeared from Earth's skies. A group of scientists concluded that Veer's comet had probably just... ...disintegrated.